As you take your seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word to Ecclesiastes. We continue to look um, at this book of wisdom, this book that God has blessed us with, that we might know uh, how to live the, the good and wise life before him, to live out that discipleship of reverent devotion instead of offering the sacrifice of fools. We're going to look this morning at chapter 6 through 714. We're not going to read all that. Even before I was sick, we weren't going to read all that, but we're definitely not going to read it all today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from the very end of 6 and, and from 7, 13, and 14, because I think you, you see a very good encapsulation of the entirety of the text. The title of the sermon this morning is Prosperity and Adversity Are Not Always What We Think. Prosperity and Adversity Are Not Always What We Think. From chapter 6, uh, verse 12. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And now to 7, 13, and 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Let's pray. Father, bless these words to us. As, there, as these, these words within this book are, are often difficult, not only in their form, uh, but especially in their content. Lord, we need to be reoriented today. And so we ask that you would do this through your word for us now so that we might indeed abandon our own wisdom, seek out yours, and to be willing to trust you enough to put that wisdom into practice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the best things that can ever motivate you to become a pastor is by first working construction. Getting up early, working in the rain, not very fun. I did that for years, but there was one job that there did tend to be a little bit of humor on uh, as I worked on a crew that was building apartments or condos uh, in Durham, North Carolina. We were um, part of this huge development where there were dozens of different buildings that were going up. So there were multiple crews that were working on this one giant site. Uh, and the, the condos we were building are the kind that everything uh, in terms of the walls are built in a factory and then sent um, uh, on trucks. So that your job basically, it's like an erector set for, for adults. 
You, you take the walls that have numbers and you put the, the right wall in the right place and you connect it the right way and you get a building. Um, what was fun on this job, though, was watching the other crews deal with something that we had discovered that we had learned that no one else had. And that is the people who came in and poured the foundations had not poured them to the proper size. Now, if you're thinking, okay, what we do is we come in, you know, we, we, pull, we pull off the edge, chalk a line, and start putting walls down. Well, if the foundation is right, that works great. If the foundation is too small, it creates a problem. And that problem with each new story that you're building on top, you start discovering the walls don't fit. And we would watch the crews around us as, as we would see them taking these factory-built walls that were built to a precise size, cutting the walls down to make them fit. And as they went up, they had to cut off more and more and more. You see, your point of reference is pretty important in construction. And if you get off from the very beginning, the further you go, the further off you get. We had to go around and start by measuring the foundations to see, are they correct? Because if the foundation is correct, then we can do what the original design is meant to do. But if the foundation is off, then we have to figure out where they're off so that we can make the proper adjustments from the very beginning. And so we did that, and we would have walls that, you would, be, that would go along, and all of a sudden, the bottom plate of the wall, there was nothing underneath it because the foundation was supposed to be there, but it wasn't. And they had to come back in afterwards and start filling these, these spots in. But if you get off from the very beginning, you're going to be off the entire time. And the further you go, the more off you get. This is not just true in construction. You, it's, it's true in everything. If your foundation isn't right, then anything you do on the basis of that foundation will be wrong. And the more wrong you do, the more wrong will build up and the worse things will get. For Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, this foundation that he has been trying to, to communicate to us is the wisdom of God. That our foundation, if we're going to live in this life and experience the good life, even the good life that can still be experienced in a sinful world, the world under the sun. If we're going to experience the good life, it has to be built upon the proper foundation. But for you and I, one of the things that we can so easily fall into is thinking we have the right foundation, acting upon that foundation, but we're really off. Sometimes we might be off by a millimeter. Sometimes, if you're like me, you're off by a couple miles. And when you're off from the beginning, you're going to continue to be off and get things worse. 
The wisdom that we need to experience the good life as disciples of Jesus Christ, even in a fallen world, that foundation Solomon has been beating upon us is God's wisdom, not our wisdom. It is God's wisdom that must provide the foundation that we are building upon. Last week, we looked at chapter 5, as we looked at that, that wrong, that the, a couple of very wrong uh, ideas that tend to, to be at the foundation of our discipleship. We, we looked at the, that wrong idea that the possession of power can somehow guarantee the good life. But as we saw, the good life is not guaranteed by the possession of power. And so we keep pursuing the good regardless of who is in charge. The powers that be do not determine whether or not we experience the good life as followers of Christ. But not only is the good life not guaranteed by the possession of power, the good life is not guaranteed by the power of possessions. And so we are to keep pursuing the good regardless of our financial circumstances. The temptation we noted last week is to let go and let God. But what Solomon is telling us is don't let go, but let God. Pursue the good, but pursue that good under his lordship, under his sovereignty, under the fact that he is the one who is is overseeing life. And that there is nothing that can happen in this this life that will go unaccounted for. And so we may see oppressions. He tells us, don't let that rattle you. God is going to bring that into account. And don't let finances rattle you. Because your ability to glorify God is not contingent on how much money you have. We are to pursue the good. We are to embody the good. We are to extend that good. We are to work for the good in this world. But we leave the results up to God's sovereignty. We work. And we work hard. But we do not connect the results simply to our efforts. You see, when you do that, when you start thinking that the results are contingent on you and your efforts and your gifts, what happens is you end up following Christ through either the mistake of of becoming controlling or becoming careless. God tells us to avoid these things by cultivating at the very basis and foundation of our lives a fear of him, reverence, respect, remembering who he is and remembering who we are so we don't get the two confused. You see, if you get confused and things aren't going well and you're like, well, I'm working so hard, why am I not getting what I'm working for? If you become controlling, you go to God and you say, God, you're not blessing. God, you're not doing what I think you should be doing with my efforts. 
if you are connecting those efforts to results, what can happen is you can become careless. If things aren't going your way, you do what? What's the point anyway? Our efforts are grounded in who God is and who we are. And we are not God. We are not as the poem Invictus says. We are not the masters of our fates. Don't let God, don't let go, but let, or yeah, don't let go, but let God. The discipleship of reverent devotion instead of the sacrifice of fools is contingent on embracing and founding everything of who we are and what we do on the fear of God. It's almost as if Solomon is saying here, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You see, we don't naturally get things right on our own. We don't possess his infinite knowledge. We don't possess the power of his infinite purposes. We are created. We are finite. We are derivative. We are dependent. But see, we can get confused and we start thinking that we, we have a better understanding of things than we actually do. And so what God has to do for us is he has to constantly work within our lives to reorient us to the fact that we don't have it all figured out, that we don't know as well as we think we do, and that we have to rely on what he has said instead of what we think is best. This is what wisdom is all about. This is what fearing the Lord is all about. When our point of reference is off, our orientation is off, we get things really wrong. We function with bad assumptions, we make bad decisions, and we end up missing the good that God has for us. And there is no, no two areas that I think that you see this more prominently in American disciples of Jesus Christ than when it comes to the areas of prosperity and adversity. Prosperity and adversity are not what we always think. God has purposes for everything that happens under the sun. And what it means to fear him and to follow him is to trust him. Regardless of the appearances. To trust him regardless of the pain. To trust him regardless of the difficulty. To trust him regardless of the struggle. When God teaches us wisdom, it is often not what we naturally think of, and it's not naturally what we expect. Most often, when God is teaching us wisdom, what he does is he turns the, what the world teaches, he turns what we often think and expect, he turns things upside down. He often requires and leads us to be unsettled, so that we don't get comfortable, that we don't become self-oriented, and that we keep our focus on God 
and we allow him to constantly refocus us on him. And we cannot do that when we are comfortable all the time. We have to be unsettled. We have to be reoriented away from the world, the flesh, and the devil to what God has said. And that is because every promise that the world, the flesh, and the devil make, every promise they make, they do not have the power to fulfill. And if you base how you're living on the promises of the world, the flesh, and the devil as your foundation for how you see yourself, how you see life under the sun, how you see your discipleship in Jesus Christ, then they will lead you astray time after time after time. We need to be reoriented over and over and over again because we never stop learning under the sun to trust God and follow him. Prosperity and adversity are not what we always think. So how does Solomon address this? Well, in chapter 6, he addresses this idea that prosperity is not always good. Prosperity is not always good. Wealth does not, wealth cannot guarantee its own enjoyment. Now let that hit you for a second. Because most of us, if we're honest, we live in a way in which we tend to think if I just had more financial stability, then I could really enjoy life. Because I don't have the financial stability that, that I would like to have. I'm, I'm always anxious. I'm, I'm always thinking, you know, I need this or I need that. And, and that makes it so I can't really rest. If I had more, then I could do what I want. I could do it when I wanted to do it. I could get what I want. I could give what I want. I could provide what I want. And then I could enjoy life. Then I can not have to be worried or concerned with things like pain, difficulties, struggles, trials. If I had more financial stability, I wouldn't have to experience those things as often or as strongly. We tend to think that money can guarantee enjoyment. But when we do this, what we are doing is cutting God out of our lives. It's a form of escapism. If I just had this, then I wouldn't have these problems. If I just had this, I wouldn't have to exercise faith as often as I'm having to exercise it right now. My job is just not fulfilling. If I just had a more fulfilling job, then I wouldn't be on edge. If my spouse would just become 
the man or woman that I want them to become, then our marriage could really, really thrive. You and I tend to think that wealth and prosperity can guarantee its own enjoyment. But when we approach life that way, we are cutting God out of our discipleship. We're replacing God with prosperity. We're we're saying that it's not God who gives us peace, but it's money that gives us peace. It's not God that gives us security. It's prosperity that gives us security. And if we're not replacing him completely, we are at least minimizing him. Prosperity is a temptation away from God. The problem is not the prosperity. We talked about this last week. In chapter 5, Solomon talks about there is a way to enjoy toil. There is a way to enjoy wealth and possessions. In fact, it's commanded to enjoy the wealth and possessions that you have. The problem is not the wealth and the possessions. The problem is our perspective of what we bring to these things. If we see them as coming from God and see them as blessings that are conduits through which we get to know God better and we trust him more and that we enjoy him more, if they are conduits to God, then wealth and prosperity is a blessing and it can be enjoyed. But if you attempt to enjoy them but cutting God out of the, pro- out of the process... You cannot enjoy them. In fact, what God says here in six, uh, chapter 6 is that God is not only the one who provides the prosperity, he is the one that provides the ability to enjoy it. You cannot enjoy wealth by cutting God out of that process. If we think prosperity itself provides us anything meaningful, then Solomon tells us we are fools. The power to enjoy life never comes from what we can put in our bank account or pass along to our children, Solomon says. It comes from God, regardless of the amount that he gives. Prosperity comes from God. The power to enjoy that prosperity comes from God. And we, in our discipleship, have to keep these things connected. And the world, the flesh, and the devil constantly tempt us to pull them apart. Does the Garden of Eden sound familiar? Hey, Eve, look at all this wonderful fruit. Why is it that God is so stingy as to keep fruit from this one tree from you? And what did she do? Did she process the temptation through what God had said? Or did she process it through what she thought? Well, you know what? It, it, it is delightful to the eyes. Oh, well, you know what? It is good for food. Well, you know what? It, it will teach me something I don't know right now. Well, so obviously I should eat at it. And she and Adam, through the use of worldly wisdom, through what they thought made sense to them, did the opposite of what God had said. They didn't trust him. They trusted the serpent. They trusted themselves. And as a result, they plunged themselves and all of us 
into sin and suffering. Prosperity comes from God. The ability to enjoy it comes from God. We cannot separate God from his blessings. It is so grievous. Solomon tells us that it's better to be a stillborn child than to be one who has a hundred children who lives for 2,000 years and who enjoys all the blessings from, who possesses all these blessings from God but cannot enjoy them. The one who looks for wealth to guarantee its own enjoyment can have tons of children, 2,000 years of chasing after enjoyment and wealth, but never find it. And in the end, he will end up in the same place as the stillborn child. The stillborn child dies, but he does so without going through the vanity of chasing after empty things. The one who has it all and looks to it for all ends up with the stillborn child. And it's not just about money, Solomon says. It's about our work. It's even about our wisdom. Now, isn't this just what God warned his people about in Deuteronomy 8? I've taken you out of Egypt. And, I, and I'm nurturing you through the desert. And I'm going to bring you to the promised land. And when you get there, man, I am going to knock your socks off with all the blessings that I'm going to give you. But when that happens, watch out. Because my blessings will tempt you to think that you've gotten this on your own through your power, through your strength, through your wisdom, through your ingenuity, you will forget that all of this has come from me. Prosperity is not always good. If we work, but trust in our own efforts, we are tempted in cutting God out of the process. If we learn and think and grow in our, in our understanding and in decision-making, but we cut, but we do this thinking that it's coming from us, we cut God out of the process. When we take finite things and raise them to the level of ultimate things, we experience them as empty things. And so Solomon says, who knows what is good for a man? while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Well, certainly not the world, the flesh, or the devil. We tend to think that prosperity leads to joy. God says prosperity, whether it is in the form of wealth, work, or wisdom, does not and cannot guarantee its own enjoyment. Prosperity is not always good. Adversity is not always bad. In chapter 7, he moves into a discussion of adversity. It makes sense, right? Well, if prosperity is always good, how are we to, uh, prosperity is not always good. If we, if we have to be reoriented in the way that we understand and relate to prosperity, what about adversity? Well, in chapter 7, he says, and 1 through 13, adversity is not always bad. 
Adversity is hard, and we don't like the hard. And so what do we do? We tend to try to avoid the hard. We want it easy. We want the path of least resistance. If it's hard, then there must be a problem. If I'm really following God, then things should fall into place. And if things are not falling into place, it must be because there's a problem. We tend to take adversity and we see adversity as bad. We think adversity is a problem to be solved. We think adversity is something that gets in the way of our knowing God and making him known. We think adversity is something that keeps us from experiencing the good life and fulfilling God's purpose for us under the sun. We tend to see adversity as inherently bad. We naturally see it as something to avoid. But the reality is truth isn't built and strengthened in what comes easy. The best thing that ever happened to me as a pastor is the development of gout. Out of control gout. Not your grandfather's in the big toe gout. Impressive gout. Bewildering gout to to many doctors in every joint, even through the loss of a hand. Weeks on end of crippling pain. It is the absolute best thing that ever happened to me to become a pastor. You see, I was that, this, is, this takes faith. I was an athlete at one time. Don't look like it now. I was strong. And I saw that as something that was in and of myself. And I saw weakness as bad. And I saw the people who struggled with weakness as, well, they're just not trying hard enough. They just need to do the work. They didn't make some sacrifices. They need to get in the weight room. They need to change the way they eat, right? If they're experiencing weakness, fix it. Avoid the weakness. Don't just sit there and, and wallow in it. Do something about it. And the, and the doing something about it was in one's own control. Now, That is not a very good recipe for being a representative of Jesus Christ to people who are struggling with sin, to people who need to be turned away from self-orientation, to be turned away from self-strength, to be turned outside of themselves to something greater than themselves. That greatness, Jesus tells us, is not found in the exercising of authority. It's found in serving. And he had to humble me so that I could finally really understand pain and weakness and learn what it is to entrust myself when things seem to make absolutely no sense to cast myself onto him and just trust him through the process. Our aversion to adversity will lead us to avoid it. And when we do, we are missing out on the purposes 
that God has for it. Solomon tells us our aversion to adversity will lead us to be less honest about ourselves and about the world that we live in. But when we do this, we minimize how bad uh, things are so that they don't appear to be as challenging. Let me say that again. When we minimize how bad things are, whether it's in us, whether it's in our neighbor, or whether it's in the world, when we minimize how bad things are, we do that because we want to avoid how bad things are. We don't want things to appear to be as out of control as they really are. We want things to be more manageable. And so what do we do? We minimize and we reduce. We don't want to have to trust God in the unknown. We want to make it known so that we can manage it. And what we do in that process is we actually cultivate a dishonesty within ourselves, about ourselves, about our problems, about the world, about our neighbors. What Solomon is trying to do for us is provide us the honest perspective of what it means to be a follower of God in a fallen world and to not be afraid of it, to not be afraid of how bad things are, to not think that we have to redefine things in order to make it here. No, we are to cultivate an honesty about how bad things are. Not so that it creates a disparity, but so that we avoid distraction. Wisdom, Solomon tells us in chapter 7, is soberly honest. Character is better than comfort, and being real is better than being distracted. And through these, what appear to be uh, proverbs, or they're like, they're like Solomon's Beatitudes, he goes through in verses 1 through 6, this, these, these descriptions of, of things, of contrasting the fleeting with the permanent. And he, he sounds like Jesus, right? Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Not blessed are those who avoid bad things, Blessed are those who actually experience those bad things, but they process it correctly in taking it to God because that's where you find comfort. You don't find comfort apart from the adversity, apart from the difficulty. You find it when you are connected to God inside of it. What Solomon says is it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. It is also vanity. You put thorns under, in a fire, and it will not provide the sustained burning heat that you need to cook what's in the pot. You put thorns in there, they're dry, they're brittle, and what happens? The flame sparks up, but then it's gone. 
When we approach life, as Solomon is telling us here through the sobriety of honesty, what, what we develop is, is a depth of character. That in the way that we experience adversity, it can either lead us to become superficial or it can lead us to become mature. When we live life not in the honesty of what really is going on, what we are doing is leading nothing but a life of fantasy and once again, escapism. If we judge adversity as bad, we will avoid it because we think it has no purpose. We will chase after distractions, judging the distraction to be more important, more valuable, and more desirable. But when we avoid the adversity because we think it's bad, because we think it has no purpose, but because we think it is a hindrance to our joy, we are engaging in the sacrifice of fools. A life of avoiding adversity is superficial existence. Being real is better than being distracted. Wisdom is to be soberly honest. And wisdom is to be stubbornly hopeful. In 7 through 13, he reorients us away from ourselves and to the finite things of life under the sun. And he reorients us to what is beyond the sun. Self-orientation, he tells us, leads to anger. It leads to selfish anger. Seeing life only in terms of the way we want to see it, seeing life only in terms of how we wish life would really be, trying to define ourselves and, and, and live within the world that we make up in our own mind, it leads to selfish anger. And it leads to selfish nostalgia. Oh, things are so horrible right now. I just remember those good old days. Guess what? They weren't that good. And even if they were, they weren't heaven. Nostalgia is a temptation to orient ourselves to the here and now in such a way that it allows us to complain about the adversities we are experiencing rather than to embrace God's purposes within the adversity to develop character and depth, honesty, and hope. You see, wisdom is not self-oriented. Wisdom looks outward. Wisdom preserves us from ourselves. It leads us to look at ourselves and our world from the perspective of the power and purposes of our sovereign God instead of the finite experiences of our daily existence. And so Solomon tells us, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Or who can make crooked what he has made straight. The fear of God is the recognition that all of life is happening under his sovereignty. And entrusting ourselves 
Adversity is not always bad. In fact, adversity is often a greater good than prosperity. Adversity produces what, pro, what I'm sorry, adversity produces what prosperity can't produce. Prosperity often leads to becoming soft. Adversity often leads to stronger trust, better focus, sober honesty that avoids distraction, superficiality, and self-orientation. Adversity reinforces a stubborn hopefulness that lives for eternity instead of the here and now. Adversity does have a purpose. And what God wants us to see is that he says it has the same purpose that prosperity is supposed to have. What's the purpose of prosperity? It's to direct our hearts to God. Through the blessings that God gives, it directs us to seeing his power and his presence in our lives so that through the material blessings, our, our eyes are lifted to God and we celebrate his goodness and his grace. We celebrate these blessings. What is the purpose of prosperity? Well, it's supposed to point us to God. What is the purpose of, of, of adversity? The exact same It is to get your eyes off of yourself, your struggle, your trial, in order to get your eyes on God, who will bring you through. Prosperity points us, is supposed to point us to God. It often tempts us away from Him. Adversity is supposed, is supposed to point us to God. Quite often, when we label it bad, we allow it to lead us away from him. See, prosperity and adversity, they're not exactly what you think, are they? They're not only good or only bad. So Solomon closes with this, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider that God has made the one as well as the other. The purpose here, he says, is not that, is, is he says, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The purpose of God providing you prosperity or providing you adversity is not for you to be able to figure out life or yourself or the world so well that you don't need to lean on him anymore. The purpose is to get you to lean on him more and more and more. And so he will not reveal to you typically why or what the purposes are in the specific minutia of whatever you're experiencing. The point is to point you to God, to point you to himself. You see, the wisdom of the world, the flesh, and the devil cause us to look at ourselves, to focus on ourselves, to understand everything in light of ourselves. And it makes it difficult for us to be disciples of Christ, living dependent, devotional lives of reverence, trusting in him and serving him as we wait to see what he does with the results. Prosperity is not always good. Adversity is not always bad. That is what God's wisdom is. 
a wisdom that turns the wisdom of the world, the flesh, and the devil on its head. A wisdom embodied in history, in the eternal king who became the lowliest servant. As Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and came in order to serve even to the point of death, yes, death on the cross. The wisdom of God is to take the most powerful and make him look the lowliest, and that is God's way of bringing about the good life. We would do the opposite. We would say, let's take the lowliest and make that person really strong so that they can enjoy the good life, whether that strength comes from, from their work, from, from their wealth, or, or, for, um, for, or from their wisdom. God's wisdom has not only been expressed in words, it's been embodied in the word. And that wisdom has been expressed not just in a cross, but a bloody cross in which wicked men sought out evil because of their own self-oriented perspective of what God's purposes and plans must be. And what did God do in his eternal power and purpose? He used what was meant for evil. He used what looked like defeat in order to bring about eternal victory. You see, the wisdom here that God provides that prosperity is not always bad and adversity is not always good is nothing less than the wisdom of Jesus Christ and his cross. Where Jesus looked like he was losing as he was being delivered up, and yet it was the very means by which he was winning. You see, it may have looked on that day, it may have looked like it was better to be one of the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin. It may have looked like it was better to be one of the Roman authorities. But the reality is it wasn't better for them. And the adversity that Christ took on to himself was not bad. It was the means of good. The cross is God's wisdom by which death brings life. Humiliation brings glorification. Suffering brings salvation. Defeat attains victory. Being unsettled is what provides peace. Has not God made the foolish wisdom? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. How often, beloved, has the cross not been the wisdom of God for you? How often has it been? seen more as a stumbling block or a hindrance. Prosperity is not always good. Adversity is not always bad. And it is vanity to think we know as well as God, let alone better than.
Beloved, the wisdom that God offers to us is not just words and concepts. It is the person of Jesus Christ. And it is the reality of his work on a bloody cross. Don't minimize how evil it was of what Jesus experienced. Don't minimize his adversity. Celebrate it. Because the more deeply he experienced that adversity, the more deeply redemption is found. So that your adversity does not have to be a means that discourages or separates. It can be the depth at which you fellowship and celebrate your shared life with Jesus Christ. Beloved, the wisdom of God is in the person of Christ, it is in the shape of a cross. Take a shot this week. Take a shot. And when you are tempted to think prosperity is what you need, or when you are tempted to think adversity is what you need to avoid, take a chance on God and take up the cross and ask him, Lord, what do you want me to learn as I experience this prosperity or this adversity? So that whether it is one or the other, I may indeed celebrate and glorify you and enjoy you forever. Let's pray. Our Father, so often we live our lives like those crews that just took things for granted, started building on what they thought was correct, what they thought was right, what they thought was true. And so often like them, what we find ourselves having to do to make up for those mistaken foundations is is cutting things out or adding things to our lives that you don't want there, that we don't need there even though we think we do. And so encourage us, Lord, to take a chance in trusting you, not only when things are good, and to trust you not only when things are bad, but to trust you regardless of the situation by embracing with a reverent devotion that what we are experiencing is what you purpose for us, that you will provide us all that we need as you have already given us all that we could ever require in Jesus Christ. And may every situation we experience this week be an opportunity to strengthen our faith and to follow you in reverent devotion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.